Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Okay, my name is Rachel Woody. I'm here with Bob Morris. We're at Phelps Creek Vineyards, and it's June 11th. And my first question for you, Bob, is why wine? Oh, well, you know, I I thought it, it started just kind of as a dream as to what would be a beautiful life to balance my um, professional career. So I thought um, that if I could live on a small vineyard of maybe uh, five acres of land and three acres of vine and have a house in the wine country, that would balance my career as, um, as an airline pilot. So that's how, that's how it all kind of started. And airline pilot, that's sort of a, an interesting way to, to parallel with the wine industry. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, the, the nice advantage of an airline pilot is that you can travel around the world. So you get to see a lot of different places. And you also don't necessarily have to live where your base is, where you work. So you can live almost any place. Um, when I was hired, um, I was looking to get back to the West Coast where I grew up. And I had grown up in San Francisco area near you know, in a county that now has some vines, but at the time we'd go up to Napa and Sonoma even for Boy Scout camping trips. And so I was familiar with um, that area and I was also, it was in the early 60s, Robert Mondavi's um, story about opening his winery and facility and all that was in the newspaper and as a little kid I still read a lot. And so that captured my interest. Um, so. When I got hired, um, I was hired in, in, in Chicago, and I started looking at how could I get back to the West Coast. So I thought about going back to California, but it wasn't really an option with my carrier. Um, Portland was a new base that was expanding. And so then I just changed my focus, and I said, okay, if I'm gonna live this dream and have um, a house on a vineyard in the wine country and, and not be too far from work, um, what's the what's a reasonable distance from the airport and is there wine out there mm -hmm. you know and my research um, I was able to find a book and the book was probably written in the early 80s um, this was now 85 86 and the book talked about the Willamette Valley and the Columbia Gorge um, as far as grapes in Oregon and I think if that book had been written five years later, it would have ignored the gorge because the Willamette Valley then was a few dozen wineries and out here it was um, four or five wineries. And so it, there was some balance. But within a few years, the Willamette Valley took off and it would have just overshadowed what was has been there ever since and has been growing out here. Mm -hmm. So um, I drew, I took a scientific approach. I drew a 90 mile circle around the Portland airport and said, where are vineyards and wineries in that circle? And that book provided me that answer. So we thought we'd go down to the Willamette Valley, look around, and come out to the Columbia Gorge and, um, and look for you know, that perfect place. Mm -hmm. And um, because I had the um, 
the, the image, like a lot of people do from outside Oregon, about how wet Oregon is. And I had picked up that to the east was drier. My first venture was to come to the Columbia Gorge, thinking it would be drier. You know, later on, I, I learned exactly where I am is the same rainfall as the North Dundee Hills. But at the time, that was the motivation. Um, so we came in for a vacation, my wife and I, and decided to take a look around. And we, uh, we actually got kind of lost. We came around 26 around Mount Hood and came down Highway 35 to the Hood River Valley. And as I'm driving down, I'm like, this is, wow, this is really beautiful. It was a day like today with the blue skies, the mountains showing, and the cherries are, were just getting ready. Mm -hmm. And um, it was so nice that when we got into town, we just started to do some investigation. And we actually went to a realtor and said, you know, what is land going for? And this one agent um, showed us a couple of different places that were, um, one was next to Hood River Vineyards. So Hood River Vineyards existed then. Right. And, um, and then the other one was this property that we're on right now. I think she, I think she only really showed us two places. And this place um, had this crazy road, as you saw when you um, came today. And, um, but it had a spectacular view of the valley. I didn't know I had a nice view of Mount Hood. Um, that at that day, Mount, it was kind of overcast, and Mount Hood was obscured um, by clouds. But we could see the view of the valley, and we could see that we had these steep slopes, and some of the slopes went to the east, and some went to the to the south. And that was part of what was supposed to be good for vineyards, as far as I knew. It was supposed to be steep slopes heading to the south. So I became interested. Um, then we went to the um, um, we did a little more investigation, but we ended up going to the Willamette Valley and, and looking around um, there. This was 1989-1990. Went to the Willamette Valley and um, went to several wineries there. Ended up in McMinnville, which we thought was a charming town. And so now it was kind of between Hood River and, and McMinnville. Um, but I stayed around for a few more days after sending my family um, back home and I took some additional time off and I came back here and talked with um, county planning, talked with sanitation, all these different people that you would have to in order to find out about whether you could build on a piece of property. And things, they were very um, cooperative. And I found this property by myself uh, that day. Um, and it wasn't easy, but I, f I found the place and I came out and it, now it was a clear day. And I, I walked out into the grass to about where we are right now and I turned around and there was the mountain. And then I go, well, oh, okay. This is, this is really quite a spectacular sight. And the price was comparable to a house lot in Chicago where we were coming from. So for 60 acres. So suddenly I was into a lot more I was serious about a lot more land than I had planned on. I was originally trying to go for five acres in a little vineyard, you know, and now I had a potentially, if I acquired it, 60 acres, and I saw where I could plant right off the bat about 10 acres of grapes. Um, so the dream just kind of, you know, takes one step after another, and, and you, you find yourself a little bit um, um, deeper into it. So. Um, there was no house here. There was about here where the winery was, there was a double wide trailer, which is why we were able to build. 
um, because it had grandfathered rights to build. And Oregon um, is very uh, has tight restrictions on um, think doing things in what's called secondary lands or or in farm zones. So it's why Oregon continues to look like Oregon is, okay. you know, at the time it was a 40 acre minimum. Well, this was a 60 acre piece of property. Um, but even if you had that 60, you couldn't build without the grandfathered rights. Otherwise, you'd have to put in a vineyard or put in a Christmas tree farm or whatever people put in to justify the income, uh, the revenue source that you could then get a, a house put on it. But this place was ready to go because it had an existing trailer it was able to, um, um, to build. So um, we continued to go down that path as far as um, acquiring um, this place. And, and then um, just shortly after, I started um, putting in vines. Mm -hmm. um, now, I reached out to coming into the community, um, grapes definitely were not dominant. This valley is, is an agricultural valley, long known for its pears and its apples. Um, and so that's, that. and at the time, pears and apples were dominant and timber was another third and um, outdoor sports, especially windsurfing, was an emerging economy here. And wine was, well, there was a few wineries. And so um, it didn't take long before stopping at Bill's Three Rivers and stopping at um, the Blanchettes and Hood River Vineyards that I was put in touch with people that were able to help me out even further. Mm -hmm. you know, so um, one of the people originally was Lonnie Wright. And um, Lonnie was, considered a grape group. A lot of other guys were known for having a little wineries, but Lonnie was known for managing a lot of grapes. And so um, I met with Lonnie and brought Lonnie out here on the property and we kicked some dirt and he said, um, yeah, I think grapes can grow here, but what, what do you want to grow? And I wanted to grow Pinot Noir because that was all the press that I was reading. And that's about as how depth the study was. I didn't bring in any consultants that checked the soil I, I you know, brought in a grape guy that wasn't really growing any Pinot at the time because he was growing mostly things 20 miles to the east where it took different varietals. Um, but I knew Hood River Vineyards had some Chardonnay and they had a little block of Pinot and those were cool weather grapes and their wines were pretty nice. And um, Bill across the river um, had you know, cool weather grapes. So I was encouraged and Celilo Vineyards um, had Chardonnay um, and so because of all that, then I, I thought we would be okay with the cool weather varietals. I had at least enough um, sense at that time that I realized that grapes like a certain kind of neighborhood. But it was, it was a reach to say, to plant Pinot. And it, it was only years later that we discovered how good of a site and how perfect of a site we had mm. for those grapes. Did you have much of a an agricultural background? No, I, ha I had none. So, so I, um, in the beginning, I hired Lonnie to be my consultant as far as planting. And then I took advantage of the Oregon Wine Growers Association. They, they always are running seminars. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so they had seminars on, um, you know, my timing was good because there was now the second wave of, of wineries was coming in. So they had the original founding families of 
um, six or whatever in the in in the Willamette Valley, and now everybody was going through the same questions. They they weren't sure about what sort of trellising. They weren't sure what sort of plant material was best. They weren't sure um, about cropping levels and all those things. And so we had constant seminars, that, and I would sign up for those, and and so I was learning. And then I had um, Lonnie to fall back on. Um, but after a couple of years, I decided I had to cut the strings from Lonnie and make my own mistakes or else I would be a very passive participant in this. And so, um, you know, I let Lonnie loose as a, as a consultant and decided, at least on the grape growing end, I was going to try to do it as much as I could myself. Mm -hmm. um, with a little help from extension service and books and and but just at that time it was just the experience of of actually getting out there in the field you know um, now it wasn't long before I acquired a foreman um, but that that was three four years down the road when I already had ten acres of grapes and I was doing all the pruning and mm -hmm. and so I you know I was learning um, but then um, Ian Arrow uh, Magania, my foreman, I got him introduced to probably in that third, fourth year, and he just started, he was recent to the valley, had brothers and sisters here, um, but a mutual friend thought this guy has all the potential to be a real foreman. And so he was just working, you know, on the crew up there, but he sent him down to see me, and we talked and he didn't he hadn't really had any exposure to grapes so I taught him the little bit I knew he started working for me and now it's been um, you know 20 years we've been together and so he um, he teaches me things about what's going on with the plants and he's the guy that's really out in the field and you know completing uh, doing the sprays and stuff I'm, I'm focused on the, the business end as this thing has grown mm. what did your family think of this wine venture? Well, I'm now a single man, so that, that answers part of that. It's not, it's not an easy, um, I think they thought um, being on the vineyard was cool for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, we get good amount of snow here in, in these hills, so the winters can be fun, but they can also be isolating because we get enough snow that you may be shut out. Mm -hmm. um, um, but it's land in which you can have some goats, and so my, you know, my kids were raised with some farm animals around, and and constant seeing deer and elk and and all the other animals. So that's way cool. Um, so I think they like that, and I think my wife just kind of tolerated that. This little, you know, three-acre vineyard, you could kind of figure out how much that was going to cost. But then every time. <laughs> You know, you you got a little bit more cash. You planted a little bit more, or you got a nicer piece of equipment, or you know another mower or something. So it, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of capital outlay, and that puts a stress into a relationship, undoubtedly. Um, however, I think now, um, um, looking back, it's like, man, you you said you were going to do this, and you did it. You know, so by the time I had acquired this place. Um, we still had ties to Chicago, so we went back to Chicago, and I told the people back there, I've acquired this 60-acre place, you know, and now my dream was already larger. I'm going to plant this, and maybe someday we'll make wine, and, and these things, and I've had some of those people come here since then. They said, 
wow, you did exactly what you said you were going to, you know, way back. So, um, so it's nice now, but you know, it hasn't always been. It hasn't always been an easy road. You spoke a little bit about when you got started in the '80s. You know, there was maybe six wineries in the Willamette Valley, a couple wineries out here. Since then, how have you seen the wine industry evolve in this area? Well, in the gorge, back when there was um, the four, five, six wineries, and um, you know, a lot of other people had been in the business for a number of years, and they were really kind of tickled and happy to see a few of us come in who said, "Well, we want to get in." To the wine business somehow, because they've had their they had their wineries. They were growing some grapes, but they were always saying someday this area is really going to take off, you know. And I mean, the dreams went on um, Chuck Henderson across the river. I mean, he planted in the early 70s, and so the dream really had existed for some time. They were waiting for everybody else to follow. Um, and so there was that acceptance, and it, w it was fun. And, and so even when um, um, the Blanchettes and Bill Swain and Charlie Hooper and um, Lonnie Wright and Chuck Henderson came also, and, and then a few of us new people were there, um, they were all excited that any moment now, you know, it's going to take off. Mm -hmm. But still, it didn't. It took it took um, a good ten years after that time frame. You know, a few more players came in, and we started selling our grapes. I in the beginning, I sold my grapes to King Estate, and then to the Ponzi's, and then Chenin. But I wasn't selling it to local wineries. I was selling it to wineries outside of this area. And it took longer time before, well, first of all, we started our production and the other new wineries came in. That was a good 10 years or so. So, um, and I think one of the things that helped the most was the formation of the AVA. Um, because it now gave recognition to this region. And um, it was intuitive back then that as a region, um, we had a challenge because we were clearly bi-state. Uh, we had vineyards and wineries on both sides. We had more kind of critical mass if we all joined together. We had easier time of marketing certain types of varietals um, as, a, as a Columbia Gorge appellation than we would as either Oregon or as Washington. A Washington producer in the gorge trying to produce Pinot Noir um, would have a hard has a hard time getting market recognition, but Columbia Gorge has developed a good reputation for, for Pinot, and so it makes it easier for someone on the Washington side. And I guess vice versa, you could say the thing with us, we produce um, a little bit of Merlot every, every few years. Nothing we grow here, but we acquire from the Columbia Gorge. If we were trying to market as Oregon Merlot, it probably wouldn't have as much um, recognition as we can by Columbia Gorge. So. Um, so then we started seeing, you know, after that 10 years or so, we started seeing people actually kind of migrate into here with the dream of, of being in the wine and such. Do you recall who some of the, the people or the forces behind creating the Columbia AVA? Well, in the beginning, um, um, 
Charlie Hooper was into it. Cliff Blanchett had been into it, but he had just sold his winery to Bernie Lurch, who bought Hood River Vineyards. So Bernie and, and Charlie, Chuck Henderson came, but Chuck was a curmudgeon even in his late 80s, so <laughs> he was, or 70s, he was. So um, he was there and supported it. I don't know, Bill, I don't know if you came to any of those gatherings when we were talking about doing the AVA thing in the... I was gone. Yeah, yeah so Bill had left. But we had um, also um, the Hoopers sold their winery and it became um, Wind River Cellars. And so, so there was this original group that was talking about it. Then we decided, well, we're really going to take some action. And um, Joel Goodwillie, of, who had bought um, when, um, the Hooper family winery and renamed it um, Wind River, he was behind that. And we all um, decided that um, Bernie had come from, he had a PhD, and so therefore he could write, and so he was going to write the proposal. That languished kind of for a number of years. Prior to that, Chuck Henderson had actually written a proposal for the ABA himself. And so that was latched on to and, and, and um, that was dusted off and was supposed to help bootstrap this, but nothing happened. So <laughs> finally it was figured out that that group wasn't going to get it done and a little bit more expanded group was for formed. And as I understand it, Mark Wary, um, um, who has a vineyard on Underwood Mountain was brought in to be the guy who would write the proposal. And we kind of formed, uh, we formed a working group that was larger and some people contributed some funds and he just, he ran the project. So um, that's how that came about. Have you had much experience in the Wine Growers Association out here? I had uh, much more experience, we're always members, and I was the second president. So um, the first president was um, Joel Goodwillie's um, um, wife. Um, her name's escaping me. Um, but um, she was the first president. Right after we formed the AVA, then we got a little bit more formal. And um, she did that. And, and one of the first things that we really had was a map. So we had a, a winery map that we could use for promotional purposes. Mm -hmm. And the group has grown in to have more concerns than just the map and more marketing. It's primarily a marketing organization. Um, so um, I came about as the second president. And, um, and then we've continued to participate, whether on the marketing committee or as, uh, as uh, people, in, people from my company being on the board or just general participation because mm -hmm. I think it really has been really important as far as unifying the area for a marketing presence. Now, both Oregon and Washington have their state associations and those state associations um, are the people that actually have some funds and access to funds. So it has always been um, a challenge for our regional association to interface and, and try to grab some of that attention from the state organizations. The state organizations, whether it's the Washington Wine Commission or the Oregon Wine Board, have tax revenue. 
-hmm. So they have larger, larger income, and then they support education and marketing and and different sort of programs like that. And I think they've done a real good job in recent years of bringing some of that, um, those resources from the state into the regional. Excellent. I think I'm going to pause here because I think I would like to bring both of you together and talk about Phelps Creek Vineyards, your partnership, but also ask some more regional uh, questions that I think getting both of your perspectives together would be valuable. Sure. And, and Bill's real history all predates mine. So then, you know, when you focus on Bill later on, you can get that earlier. We'll definitely history. go back to the history part yeah. for sure. Yeah. Thank you. I'm Rachel Woody, and I'm here with Bill Swain and Bob Morris, and it's June 11th. We're at Phelps Creek Vineyards. And I'd like to start off talking about how you two formed your partnership. Um, the evolution of Phelps Creek Vineyards, um, and then we'll get into some of the general, regional, and getting your thoughts on that. Well, when I moved into the area, or actually, I hadn't moved there, I was just, I was acquiring the property, and Bill had a winery called Three Rivers um, in town. So of those, um, what, there was two wineries on the Oregon side, and I think three at that time on the Washington side and there was another kind of custom crush here on the Oregon side that went out on its own. So Bill had one of those operations so I ended up stopping in his room and, and just started talking and picking his brain about the area and I found out he had, he had a, a passion um, you know for the area and had a lot of great information for me and and he was getting grapes from Lonnie Wright, as anybody who was making wine here was getting grapes from Lonnie. So he gave me Lonnie's name, and, and the Blanchettes up at Hood River Vineyards had said the thing, same thing. In fact, the Blanchettes um, introduced me to my home builder, because he, he had just finished a house for them, and, and they wouldn't have used anybody else but that guy. So suddenly, just by reaching out to a few people that had been here for a while, you, you started making a network of kind of friends and advisors. We also, uh, there was a, uh, before Bob arrived, we'd started a wine tasting group, which involved, uh, of course, everybody who was in the wine business, which was a small group initially, um, but include, uh, you know, a lot of the local people that were, I guess you might want to say, more sophisticated in their tastes. And so, you know, there were, we had doctors and dentists and yeah. inn owners and lots of different people. So we would get together on a regular monthly basis and all get together and talk about different things. And uh, uh, going back in time, I remember one of our first group meetings was uh, we were at Charlie Hooper's place over in Houston. And it was May 1980. And we were sitting out on his deck and we were looking up at the sky and thinking, ah, oh, it's really weird. It's got this orange tinge to it. And we didn't find <laughs> out until a couple hours later when we turned the TV on that that was in Mount St. Helens that exploded. And we were looking at a whole bunch of ash coming over the top of us. Yeah, so. it could have started falling on you guys. <laughs> you were pretty, as the crow flies, you were pretty close to it. Yeah, so it was, uh, yeah, fortunately it all went, you know, we got a little dusting of ash here, ah, probably less than an eighth of an inch and everything else got dumped elsewhere. But uh, 
that was just kind of an interesting story that sort of ties in with the with our wine group here. I think that um, that group just kept on growing and growing in size, and maybe it was Bill convinced Sherry Dobo to finally step in and kind of be the coordinator. At least she stepped in. So because it had started out with all the wine professionals, but then it became their friends who were winos, and and suddenly these gatherings, at least during the summer, sometimes approached 200 people. I mean, it was a lot of people at these things. So they became a summer rotation. It was, I think, steak at Hood River Vineyards. It was smoked turkey here. I didn't have a winery. I just had a house with, with enough room. And, and then up at Hooper's, it was a salmon. And there might have been a, I don't know if there was a fourth one, but that was the rotation every summer. And they got to be these uh, great parties of all the wine-interested people, you know, going. And, and it just kept on growing for a while till finally it became so much that we kind of gave it up because it was just overwhelming. <laughs> and also, people started becoming more serious about having their own wineries and their own events. And this was kind of an all-dominating sort of um, thing. And I think nobody was willing to put all the work in that Sherry did, and she finally had enough. Yeah, it always takes a driving force to keep something like that going where it wants to drift off in different directions and peters out. At least the, uh, the initial good intentions of everything kind of uh, diffuses with time. So maybe it's time to do another one, Bob. Yeah, I, it might be. There might be that excitement to, to do it again. So, um, so a lot of people met each other. They networked in that particular group. And you might have been networking with other winery owners, or you were networking with the guy who ran the Les Schwab, or somebody at the chamber, or whatever. So it was just a way to make connections. Um, it's still a very small um, community here, um, just even beyond wine. So it's it's not difficult, but that was a kind of a ready source of of meeting people. Do you think there's still potential for growth here? Oh, things yeah. we've heard from Willamette Valley is it's kind of hit its peak as far as land available and, and marketing space available. I think, I, I, think, um, I think, yes, there's plenty of opportunity out here because um, we're still looking for our second anchor tenant, as I like to, I think of it like a, like a really developed mall. So um, we have Mary Hill on one end of this um, mall, and I'm looking for an anchor tenant on the the west side, uh, and I think that could happen. Um, and what has happened right now is a lot of couples with passion, um, but maybe not a lot of wine background have come into it. And we're just starting to see now the people who actually came here right from the beginning to make wine and they have wine education. So they're Davis grads or they're um, grads from um, the Washington program and such and they come here specifically to make wine. And so that, that's a whole different, you know. If you look at Oregon <coughs> starting out, with I think with the exception of David Lett, um, they were garage they were professionals, but they were really garage winemakers. And that, those original six people 
but I think Lett is a Davis grad, is he not? Yeah, uh, a number of, in the Willamette Valley, a number of them were, uh, were UC Davis uh, trained people. Uh, some, you know, sometimes it was in viticulture, sometimes it was in the winemaking program. Yeah, I mean, just, but in that original six, the, the, the formal education was a little thin compared to the, the on-the-job. And, and that's how largely the gorge started out. And um, the one, um, the first real exception to that, I would say, is Bill. Because here you had a Davis guy who came in, you know, back there and when dinosaurs still roamed the, the Columbia Gorge and, and the Missoula floods were happening. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and, and so now you had, that was great, that's great validation. You know, you have a person with the formal education that says, I think this is a great place for grapes as opposed to the guy who says, well, all my neighbors are growing pears, I want to grow grapes and I'll start making some wine, you know, mm -hmm. so. Could either of you speak to, Hood River has been known for a long time, very much fruit agriculture. Was it an easy transition into grape growing and winemaking or what did that look like? Easy transition, interesting. Uh, uh, I don't think the transition is almost ever easy any place that the grapes have developed worldwide over time. Um, if you look at uh, European vineyards, the valuable lower ground that's easy to farm into row crops and whatever was always used for that. And then the, the stuff that was, you know, you know, what else, well, what can we grow there? And I can't plant wheat, can't plant corn, can't plant grain. Oh, maybe grapes will grow. And, you know, that's how Burgundy, that's how Bordeaux, and that's how other places kind of developed. This is the best thing we can grow here. Mm -hmm. And they turned out to be the perfect choice. And uh, I think uh, that will uh, probably bear out here also over time. I can see how uh, in the Napa Valley, uh, walnuts and other uh, crops were pulled out and planted with grapes there as the Napa Valley just became you know, such a valuable commodity for, for, the, for the land in the area. Uh, and that might happen here eventually, but there's a lot of land here that hasn't been used or it hasn't been used for anything other than maybe growing uh, wood. So we'll, we'll see how much of that uh, transitions in the future. That, that's a long ways away. And uh, and we haven't reached, despite my um, complete satisfaction, that I think this is still a better growing area than the Willamette Valley for Pinot Noir or Chardonnay or just about anything that they grow. Uh, we haven't reached the recognition of that, partly because we don't have enough people doing the high quality product that we're capable of and partly because yeah, when places start to develop and start to gain a reputation, they have enough uh, inertia and gravity behind the whole thing that it kind of carries the things along for, for a long period of time. And, but grapes are a long-term project. I mean, they've been growing grapes in areas of, of Europe for a thousand years or more. And uh, we've been doing it here for 30 or something 30 like that. 30 yeah. So, uh, I mean, we're just, you know, like we're, we're we're toddlers in, in, the whole, in the whole wine scene, if you look at it from the broad perspective of time. So coming, coming into an area that already has agriculture, you know, I mean, Hood River Valley is 75% of planted to pears. 
the reputation is for apples. That dates to the 1920s and prior. But they had a big freeze back then, and pears are a little more hardy. So this valley transformed into a, but you can see how that inertia for reputation will continue. If you come into an area that's already ag, there are some, there's, a, there's some ag stores. There's a tractor dealer. There's, you know, you can get farm diesel. And so you can get some. You might not get exactly the grape things that you need, but you can get a lot of that equipment and a lot of it's the same. So that was an advantage. Now in this, grapes in Oregon tend to be grown on secondary, less desirable lands. Uh, not so much, I think, because they're, de they're more desirable for grapes. We want slope. Why? Because we're growing on the edge. We're, we ha we're trying to grow in a marginal climate to where our season, we, the grapes take the entire available season from, from the last killing frost to the first killing frost of fall. We take up that season. We get the most hang time. But then we want to give us the most advantage we can. So if we're on a steeper slope, we gather more sun. Um, and if we're on a steep slope, we have frost protection. And we're growing grapes that don't require ladders. So for all those reasons, the land that's not really suitable for orchards um, also happens to be the best for vineyards. Oh, and lastly, um, the land on the hillside tends to be less um, rich. So if you have an orchard, you want to have vigorous land because um, it's about the tonnage that you can bring off. With grapes, it's, it's purely the quality. So if we can have more lean soil, um, we, can, we think we can have better grapes. So all those reasons put vineyards in Oregon on a hillside. Um, and, um, and so that has worked out to be pretty synergistic. So, and I found that the farming community here has embraced it because um, their, their problem is they don't want to see change and lose ag. You know, they want to be able to keep their orchards. Um, and when they see people coming in bringing more economic vitality, but it's agricultural related, um, they've been pretty supportive of that. Um, now, when it takes over and it's all grapes, <laughs> that, that could be a different dynamic. But we're such a, we're such a long ways away from that time. Yeah, who knows where we'll be a hundred years from now, but uh, or whatever that's going to be, we're at the very beginning of it. And being in this area for the time that you both have been, what have you found being the best varietals for this area? And then speaking to the larger Columbia area because the different sides of the gorge, the different slopes, um, well, the, I imagine there's a tremendous amount of varieties. There's a tremendous amount of varietal difference. Um, grapes like a particular neighborhood. So right where we're seated right now, we are the westernmost vineyard on the Oregon side of this Appalachian. And its heat units and its rain um, all drive us towards cool weather varietals like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Um, but it's, it's, that difference goes from east to west. The same varietals are really prime north-south between Mount Hood and Mount Adams. You know, you can also throw in Kvrchtemeiner and Pinot Gris and a little bit of Riesling. All the cool weather varietals are on that 
now, as we go to the east, we're going to start seeing Rhone varietals and and Bordeaux varietals as far as ways the Dalles 20-25 miles away. So a short distance it's changing its climate. That gets a little muddled in the mind of the consumer because a lot of the original wineries here had a real Bordeaux focus. They weren't growing that many grapes themselves. They were bringing in most of their grapes. The, the vineyards that existed were to the east, not very far, could have been 15-20 miles but they grew warmer varietals. So you'll see a focus still in the Hood River Valley of people selling, marketing in their tasting rooms, cabs and Merlots and things that don't really grow in this valley. And when you're talking about grapes and climate and growing conditions, there's kind of a macroclimate and also microclimate considerations to take into account. In the Willamette Valley, you have a kind of this general macroclimate. You know, the temperatures and the rainfall are all within a kind of a range, but there's variations on elevation, whether you're to the north, you know, what your exposure is, whether you have a pure south or southeastern, southwestern, all those things make a difference. They're more subtle, but they make a difference. And the same is true here, but I think we have even more variables because we certainly have uh, much more up and down, much more uh, extreme uh, elevation changes that we can utilize. To, to influence the varieties of grapes that we grow and the quality we get. And then also, as you get closer to the river, you get more wind. Wind can be a big factor in, in, in how a vineyard uh, uh, works. Um, you can have the same amount of heat rays or sun rays coming down to a, the vineyard in this spot and another one that's closer to the river, and the wind is kind of blowing away the heat as it's coming down. It's not accumulating, so you can have, a, a, even though your sensors may say it's the same, it's really not the same. So you touched on this a little bit, but for this area, how do you market Columbia Gorge wine? Well, when I'm, um, um, there's not that many wineries in in the gorge that have distribution beyond Oregon and Washington. Um, but we're one of the few that do. And we have some international distribution. I lead off with talking about being an Oregon winery. Um, and primarily because um, that has more recognition. That's getting market penetration now and I can, I can ride the coattails of some other people in some of those markets. But then when they're familiar with Oregon wines, then I can hit them with, well, we're Columbia Gorge. You know, you don't have any Columbia Gorge in your portfolio. You need to have that. So I am usually leading with, uh, with, um, with Oregon. In terms of Columbia Gorge, um, three years ago, um, when I would say Columbia Gorge, they would nod their head. But then if they repeated it back to me or if they showed me where they had it on the shelf, it was always Columbia Valley. So that was very common. And then I would point out, well, you know, Columbia Valley is, we think of it as a Washington Appalachian, but actually has significant land in Oregon also. And, but we're Columbia Gorge, and they give me a chance to really tell them why this is different. Um, but I have found now, um, we're getting enough attention um, that that's, that's starting to fade. They're starting, the, the real wine people know now. Um, you know, still the run-of-the-mill person would say, so you grow grapes in Oregon? 
they, they still don't know. But this end of the business of fine wine, um, we're talking such a small percentage of wine consumers. We're talking less than 1% of the wine consumers are the target market for all of Oregon's wine, basically, and all of my wines. Um, it's a very small segment of someone who's buying wines that are $30 or more a bottle. Um, so um, that, that brings us, it's two-edged. It brings us a more narrow market, but it brings us people generally who are willing to buy that more educated. One thing that we found in Southern Oregon is that there was a focus more on selling to your neighbors, uh, a more local marketing focus. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, when a winery is at a certain size, unless they are fortunate, and I'm talking here about at a small size, so two, three thousand cases or less, which is what a lot of uh, small wineries start off at, or even less, it may start at 500 cases and grow to 3,000, and that's their upper limit. Um, but when you're at that size, you have to sell a high proportion of your wine, uh, not through distribution, unless you can claim a certain almost cult-like status where people are really willing to pay extra just because of who you are. But if you haven't achieved that status, then you really, you have to sell it to either local people or if you're close enough to a freeway you can you can sell it to people who who pass by you traveling from one place to another so uh, small wineries that uh, um, keep their head above water generally have good locations for selling to people that come to the winery directly I'd like to uh, ask you guys about Washington and Oregon the the Bi-State AVA, what are the strengths and challenges of having that as part of your geography? I think the, street, the strength is a, a relatively small AVA gets more critical mass when it expands as geographically we do. So rather than having it be named two different things, um, being named one thing gives us some um, impact. Um, the challenges always um, tend to be from the funding sources. So uh, I'm on a, a standing committee of research for um, Oregon winemaking and, and uh, viticultural research. And we just had the director of the Washington um, board uh, meet with the Oregon one and we're going to do some collaborative things. So the scientists and, and the professors are very willing to get together and share lab space and do some joint projects and publish together. The problem is, is when they seek the funding, it's very difficult to get the funding to flow across the state line, you know, both ways. Oregon legislature doesn't want that funding to go to Washington and Washington vice versa. So, so, so you have to finesse that to where um, you get them to accept that there's going to be some Oregon participation, but they're bringing their own funds to participate. So that's kind of a challenge. On a more local um, level, um, I mentioned before, we, ha we have this um, map of the district of the tasting rooms in the district. And 
um, and it goes on both sides of the river. Well, Klickitat County, which is a huge county in Washington, decided they were going to fund their own map. And so that wasn't going to talk about Oregon. Um, and, and then because they were funding it, well, and what they wanted to do was, well, they knew the gorge had something going on, but they have a lot of wineries and Horse Heaven Hills and the rest of Klickitat County, which is humongous county. Um, and so they wanted to do a map that pulled all that into one. And so then you've put in marketing resources of trying to get the Washington wineries and the Oregon wineries to pass out this map that has us both. But if you're not careful, some of your members um, start going with an only Washington map. And you know, here uh, we have a little bit of the same. We, I'm on a map called the Fruit Loop and it's just the Hood River Valley. And so that could have some resentment from some of the Washington guys. Hey, wait a minute, you're not even mentioning us. So you have to put an extra effort into kind of um, making sure that we all work together. Winemaker, especially small winery founders, like a lot of small business owners tend to be uh, strong personality maverick type people and getting them to all agree on something is kind of like the proverbial herding cats thing. It's just, it can be really difficult to do. Yeah. <laughs> but that, if you didn't have the interesting people, you wouldn't have the interesting wines, which over time is, I think, is, is a more important benefit than having a bunch of wishy-washy people that agree on everything. In your time in the industry, have you ever had one of those, oh gosh, if I had to do it over again, I would do this? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What would those be for you? <laughs> well, see, I started out small and reasonable. So, you know, I, I, I was growing grapes and I was selling to King Estate and Ponzi and, and Shanann and it was penciling out and and then decided we were gonna you know have some wine made in our name and so it was just wine made by Peter Rossbeck of Chenin but had my label on it and that penciled out but then in 2007 I think 2006 we opened the tasting room and we needed more wine because we couldn't have just wine for a couple of weeks so and, and in seven, we decided to build out our own facility on somebody else's land, but we, we put in a winery and we greatly ramped up production because, well, if I was paying a fixed cost for my winemaking and for my winery and certain things, then I could lower my unit costs by making more of it. So I, I greatly expanded, I made the great leap forward into what has become now known as the Great Recession. <laughs> so I had a lot of wine coming on the market at right at the time in which that price wine was getting beat up. And the distributors across the country were deciding not to bring in more wine. They were depleting inventories. They were worried about the future and they started filling their warehouse with imported wines at really low cost. 
So and going out of business, some of them going out of business. <laughs> I chose a lot of ones that I helped them. I mean, I didn't help them go out of business. I I gave them some inventory. They went out of business, and and I never got paid. So that was just a matter of timing, and, and you you don't always have that crystal ball. So yes, if I was to do it all again, I could see I could have charted a path to be the same place I am right now, but not have gone down some side roads that I that I took. But, you know, on the other hand, I'm really happy about where I am right now and 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 it's coming about, you know, and, and so I wasn't alone in that. There was a lot of people that were were caught up about the timing. Uh, from my point of view, um, well, I'm not by nature one of these uh, look back with regret type of people. Um, we uh, came to the Gordon in 78 and left in 93, 1993. And uh, I guess if I have something I would do over again, we left for other than family issues and uh, I can get into that later if you want it's kind of interesting um, but I did leave I think you know if, if I had hung in here like uh, Bob who was just kind of starting at the time I was getting ready to leave if I if I'd hung around and kept on going um, I would have been part of this uh, uh, growth that they've had here and probably uh, enjoyed that a lot not to saying I didn't enjoy what came next for me but uh, I think Bill had quite a shock when he came back in the community and found out what I had grown to because... Well, not only that, but when I left here, there were, I think, five wineries. Yeah. And uh, when I came back, there were 40 or 50, something like that, yeah. whatever we have now. So, yeah. so it, just, it was just a dramatic change. And, like I, st and I still don't think we have that, that anchor tenant. Uh, when I say the anchor tenant, I mean the, the person that's so well capitalized that they build something really beautiful from the beginning. So most of us are small places, which is very charming. I mean, I relate more to those people that, that, they're, that they're bootstrapping it from the beginning and with a lot of struggles, but I have this feeling we're gonna have someone come in and, and recognize the area and buy some land, and next thing you know, this castle winery is being built, so. Yeah, I mean, uh, Oregon is kind of, I think it built its way in the Willamette Valley. I'm talking about Oregon, because they were the the ones that have they were the ones that have built the Oregon reputation for mainly for Pinot Noir, maybe for Chardonnay and Pinot Gris also. I think that was uh, a number of people that just kept doing well enough that they finally, you know, people couldn't deny them the notice that they deserved. But if you look at uh, Washington State. That was, uh, was it American Tobacco that, uh, I think American Tobacco that started St. Michelle and then uh, uh, Columbia Crest and put the massive amount of money into production and then marketing, which put Washington on the map. And I'm sure Washington would not be anything close to what it is now if it didn't have that, that huge input from one significant source. So uh, we're not looking to have St. Michelle here, but uh, uh, you know, Mary Hill is I think 85,000 cases, which makes them by California's standards still a small winery. 
but by uh, Northwest standards, uh, they're a significant player. Right. So if we had something like that, or even half that, here in the, the Hood River or the, the early Columbia Gorge area, that would, uh, I think, attract more people to everybody else and attract more attention yeah. to the area. I mean, Oregon's going through a transition right now as we speak that we have now the Jackson family coming in and and um, and that and Louis Jadot is coming in and 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 we've had the Druins and and of course King Estate was Jadot organic recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that suddenly you you have them in the valley questioning how is that going to play? Are these big dogs? going to still play in the kennel with all of us little, relatively little dogs. The early signs are quite good. Um, I was at a meeting and the Jackson family flew up for the meeting. <laughs> Just to go to a reception, they flew up in their plane. So that was really, uh, that was nice. And, um, you know, it could easily happen here. This is the type of place in which um, people, not so much for wine, but for outdoor sports and things, decide they want to come here. And so it's going to be somebody who combines those things. Now, is that really a positive experience? I'm not sure, but it's, it seems to me it's a milestone that is going to probably happen at some point. Um, and it's nice it, 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 just because they will have the marketing resources to try to push their product across the country. You know, so that helps bring recognition. Yeah, it, it takes development. Uh, I, I started off in the Napa Valley back in uh, uh, the early 70s. When I first started working there in the Napa Valley, there was more Chenin Blanc planted than there was Cabernet Sauvignon. So that gives you an idea of what that local industry was like then. And I don't think you could find a Maybe you could find one or two Chenin Blanc vines, but it's, it's if you're not Merlot or Chardonnay or Cabernet Sauvignon or some of the other, you know, uh, more significant uh, red varietals, you're, you, you probably can't sell your grapes there. And you, but you can sell the others for quite a bit of money. So there's been a, a huge transition there over 40 years. So the the media attention has gotten to be. Um, um, very encouraging. So um, starting in 2006, Parker's Wine Advocate covered this area as part of its review of Oregon Pinots. And, and then also on the Washington side, um, some of the growers were included in the Washington Review. Um, so that's very positive, and, and they kind of had, the advocate had changed it from a review of Willamette Valley Pinots to now they call it a review of Oregon wines. So that expands and and gets that out. Um, John Bonet of the San Francisco Chronicle just in the last month wrote a beautiful article about um, basically saying the Columbia Gorge was a, this hidden gem ready to, you know, to, needs a lot more attention than it was getting. And uh, we were mentioned in it, but it, I was really impressed about who he mentioned because he mentioned other people who are relatively new that came in just to make wine. So that was, a real, to me, um, I don't know how he connected with those people, but it was a very encouraging article um, because um, it was, for the first time, somebody from out of the area really giving broad attention to this and pictures and the whole thing. So I think it's, it's, it's going to get 
um, that additional attention. And I also say is the, the Oregon Wine Board, who does the marketing on the Oregon side, um, really does reach out to us now. Um, they've been doing that for the last four or five years, and um, Oregon has a couple of big events coming up. They have Oregon Pinot Camp coming up in July. Um, at the end of Pinot Camp, 14 of the v visitors from international visitors are going to go to a dinner, and we're going to be one of the five wineries there. And then there's uh, the IPNC, and again, um, state funds through the Oregon Wine Board bring in some foreign visitors to the IPNC, and there's going to be a gathering the, the Sunday that that ends, and Phelps Creek's going to be there. So I'm really pleased that, you know, there's been a reach out to make sure that, in fact, I think that IPNC dinner is going to be all gorge. So it's going to be a gorge-focused dinner, but at a Portland restaurant, because those people are flying out. And so that's great, yeah. you know. All right. Well, are there any questions that I should have asked you that I haven't yet, or, or any stories that you two would like to tell before we move on to Bill? Uh, maybe a quick rundown and kind of the history of the winery development in the gorge. More clearly defined that uh, uh, Charles Chuck Henderson came out here as a farmer in his. He bought a, I think it was predominantly cherries. He may have had apples and pears also, um, but predominantly cherry orchard on the, the Washington side, just uh, north of White Salmon. And he started dabbling with, uh, with wine grapes mid to late 60s, as I recall. And he started working with uh, um, Dr. Clore, Walter Clore, from uh, Washington State University, who had uh, set off to do kind of a a potential vineyard growing mapping thing of different parts of, of I guess, Washington, but I think it bled over to the border areas also. And uh, he was uh, probably the first uh, academic type to say, ah, yes, the gorge has a, a lot of potential. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of the reasons I even came here to look at stuff was because I had read some work that he had done. And so that was what I think initially attracted me to, to investigate this area. So Chuck Henderson was certainly the pioneer. His first plantings were, what I'm guessing, uh, early, mid-70s. So he was, he was sniffing around. Same time David Lett was putting yeah. some sticks into the ground. You know, it goes back to that um, time frame. Um, there is even, you know, <laughs> pre-recorded history when the pines um, vines were put on by put in by Pisano's. Uh, rumor is that the guys who were doing the masonry work for the Columbia Gorge Highway, the old highway. So there was infidel planted over a hundred years ago in this area, but that was an ice that was isolated and and probably mostly grew from from the Italians that were there wanting to get access to their own grapes. And you know. the locals call Bingen. I still prefer to call, prefer to call Bingen, which is the German name after what 
after it was named. Uh, that was settled by, because of the name, you know, predominantly German people in the probably late 1800s. And they did plant some vines, and there's some evidence of that. So uh, yeah, there's some early history of trying to grow, just like there is at most agricultural places. You know, a lot of people are trying a lot of different things, and yeah. wine has always been an important part of the old world culture, so why wouldn't they try that? Um, but uh, so yeah, there was evidence of that, and then uh, so Chuck, I think Chuck. Well, I I came up here in 1978, and he had wines in the bottle for a while, so I'm guessing his uh, his first bottling was probably mid 70s. I'm guessing, must have been maybe 75. And uh, so when I came up here and met Chuck, uh, uh, he was very helpful, and he actually helped me find the 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 property across the river in Underwood that I bought and planted the grapes. Um, and uh, about the same time that I was sniffing around here, that's when Cliff Blanchett was already getting ready to start planting grapes. So he had grapes in the ground before I did, and I think his first harvest was maybe 81. Sounds about right. Uh, mine was in 83. Uh, I think Charlie Hooper's at Hooper Family Winery was uh, probably 85. And then there was a little bit of a lull before. I, and then when did Cushman put his vineyard? Oh, that's right. His was in there. Well, we started the winery in 83. So he probably planted that around 1980, I'm guessing. So. One fellow that we we hadn't talked about, Rich Cushman, um, another Davis grad who grew up in the in the Hood River Valley, and um, he ended up planting a vineyard here in that time frame Bill was talking about. But he plied his trade always in the Willamette Valley, so he lived in McMinnville and worked for a number of different wineries, um, and then. Um, in 2000, uh, 2006, moved back to live here and became um, my winemaker, in, in, at least for half of my wines in 2006. In 2007, he was really in charge of the total production, but moving back to here. So there were, there were some roots. There was early vineyards, there was some interest, but they weren't always here. There, then, as we look at the development of this area, um, part of the recognition, I think, was when people started buying grapes from the Willamette Valley and they came out here to buy grapes. So um, once we were into, into production in uh, about um, 96, 95, 96, we were selling grapes to King Estate. And King Estate had planted in about 1990, but they, they weren't in full production, so Brad Beal um, who was the vineyard manager um, would come up here and he was sourcing grapes from Lonnie and Lonnie was putting him in touch with other people that had grapes and so they were excited to get peanut they from Lonnie I mean they were getting Bordeaux varietals that they were just playing around with in their and down in their winery in Eugene and then Brad started getting grapes from us well that was really important because King Estate was 
they're an anchor tenant <laughs> and, and they paid on time. So when you had new vineyards coming into production and they were excited about your place, they paid you in 10, 10 days from harvest. I mean, it suddenly made the business more sustainable. Um, and that went on for a number of years, but they would talk about getting the grapes from out here and then that led to like the Ponzi's. They, they, they were looking for more grapes and they drove out here and they were buying some grapes. And then Peter Rossbeck of Chenin, um had fallen in love with the fruit starting with the Zinfandel grown and the Dalles. And then he started looking around to the other vineyards. And um, so all that action um, brought some attention. You know, I, 10 years ago, if you asked people in the Willamette Valley about what's going on in Hood River, they had no idea, if, even if they were in the wine industry. Now, you ask any of those guys, they know it's pretty vibrant out here. And some of them have even been here. <laughs> so, <laughs> they still are a little provincial, but, some, but a lot of them have been in here. And in fact, if you really get talking to some of these guys, they'll say, well, you know, I looked at the Hood River Valley back then in the late 80s. I was looking there, but there was just a few more wineries in, in the Willamette Valley, so I went there, you know. so. Um, Harry Peterson Nedry of Shehalem has told me that that story, and others have said, you know, we thought about it. They'll rue the day that they didn't. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, someday, uh, someday. So, you know, uh, we didn't even talk much about Salilo over there. Dr. McAndrews, uh, yeah. who's probably had the first uh, planting of grapes that started showing up on labels at other wineries is because it, it, it made good enough wine that it was worth doing that, with his, principally with his Gewürztraminer, but also his, his Chardonnay, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir that uh, uh, James Mantone's making at Syncline uh, created some waves also. So, so when was that planted? It must be, uh, I'm, well, it was well established when I got here, so. Maybe 75? I mean, I don't know. We need to call Rick up and ask him. Yeah, so the, so the dock, is, as Rick would say, the dock yeah. um, acquired a whole bunch of land and had it planted to a lot of pears. I don't know if they have any apples, but they have pears. And then he wanted some grapes. And then the grapes were successful, so they planted more grapes to where that's a really acclaimed vineyard. In fact, in the story of Northwest Chardonnay, it's a very important site because uh, when I came in, if we, if we go to say 1990, um, Chardonnay, they were throwing their hands up because they, they were not having luck getting Chardonnay ripe um, season after season. And so Oregon had planted Chardonnay because, well, in France, the Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, they should go hand in hand. And the Pinots were coming into their own, but the Chardonnay was always more difficult. And I started attending these seminars, and it was about plant selection. And they're saying, you know what? We planted the wrong clone of Chardonnay. And we know Chardonnay can grow here great because if we look at two wineries, Ken Wright, Ken Wright Cellars, but I think they were actually looking at him when he was at Panther Creek. He does a Salilo Chardonnay. And Rick Small of Woodward Canyon does a Salilo Chardonnay. Well, where's this Salilo? It's on Underwood Mountain. That's, a cool, that's even cooler than the Willamette Valley. It's just north of me, but it's a cooler, wetter site than here. And so they, that 
that triggered, it was a clonal issue. They just had the wrong Chardonnay planted. And um, heck, we weren't even all that aware of clones prior to that. So they started doing, you know, importing these Dijon clones and doing tests with these Wente clones. And, and next thing you know, I was attending s seminars where the wines were being made at OSU and they were just, the only difference was the clone and we were isolating what might work and we started planting new plant material. And now Chardonnay's doing great in, in Oregon. And, um, and that all comes from that and Celila has a, a lot to do with it because they changed people's minds. Do you have a, a feel for where most of the grapes in the gorge are planted? It seems like there's more in Underwood than maybe any place. Yeah, I, I would say Underwood is really... I mean, it's the easiest, easiest to find and plant a potential vineyard area that has a nice southern exposure just because of the way it is. It's How on the mountain side is, of the yeah. river. Um, the rest of the the rest of the, the Hood River Valley, people have driven up and said, well, where the heck are your grapes? Because we're all tucked back here in, in the hills. So we're not on the flat land and the road. Mm -hmm. Now, I would love to have a few vineyards be right on Country Club Road. And I got some sites where I would just love for that because it would tell everybody you're in a wine district. But they probably, realistically, wouldn't be the best grapes that that winery had, but they would be the showiest ones, you know. So that would help. Um, but yeah, we're we're tucked up here, so we got we have 30 acres here, and Y East has 30 acres tucked up, and you wouldn't know where it was unless you yeah, got you gotta, there. Got to look for it. Yeah, you and know, Abel, you have to know where it is, and and then yeah, yeah, Abel make it has a destination. Some. Mount Hood Winery. Now they have they have grapes right there on the highway, but they also suffer from winter frost because they're a little flat. So, but it, but it really adds to the, the perception you're in a wine district. All right, shall we take a break? Sure. sure. All right, thank you both. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.